taking both of those themes that Jonathan's just mentioned, they're so incredibly pertinent to what we're going to look at now. Because our cultures are changing very radically. They've changed very radically from biblical times through to modernity. But yet, there is something so fundamental that at the very heart of it, you find the elements of exactly the same struggle in the first century and in the 21st. Because I'd submit to you that one of the most profound struggles is that between the kind of the Greco-Roman Hellenic human-centered worldview and that which is thoroughly biblical. I'd prefer to call it biblical, but I'll call it Hebraic for the simple reason that most people read their Bible through Greek lenses and forget the distinctiveness of the radical nature of their faith. Not what brings you to that second book. A radical church is a church that can be restored and renewed by rediscovering, really, its roots. Because consistently running through all is the one God. Not several gods, but one God. He does not change. And that's why I found a number of years ago a profound challenge into my life. And I'm, like many of you, on a journey... I came through a stage where I thought after theological education I sort of got a reasonable grasp of things. Then I look back now and see, look, theological training, it really was about giving me a window to look through, not a box to live out of. And I think so many theologies are about a box that you've got to protect and live within. And even your brothers cannot cope with you if you start to think outside their little boxes. We've got to get out of the boxes. We've got to learn to have the confidence to walk with God. And that's why I find this great challenge from a man, an Orthodox Jew, called Abraham Joshua Heschel. In his writings, he says this, that each time before uttering the word God... A monosyllable with which we're so familiar. But then the challenge comes, we must first take the mind out of the prison of platitudes and labels. How easily we fall into the trap of these kind of mental, traditional pathways where we think we've got it kind of sussed out. We've got to take a fresh look. Because as Eugene Peterson says, so much of modern Christianity has become packaged. We've got God packaged and we stick the label Christian on it and think, oh, it's then accessible or unacceptable. Let's have the courage to get really radical. Back to the real roots. In Israel today, there's a fascinating character called Jared Schroeder. He's in his 80s. He's a world-class physicist. He has written quite extensively about the relationship of scripture to science. But one of his most striking little phrases is where he says, the God an atheist does not believe in is usually not the God of the Bible. Unfortunately, the God of the believer is also often not the God of the Bible either. That's the challenge. 
he goes on to write, by abandoning preconceived notions of the author of creation and replacing them with the Bible's description and nature's display of God, we shall learn about God according to God. So let's venture out a little bit and explore God through that lens. And as we do so, the word has become so familiar to us. It's even given its name to the study of God, theology. But what I want to ask you now to think about, just for a little while, is how much of our modern theology is really made in Greece. How much of it has been shaped? Now, we're not going down the path of <clears throat> kind of been disparaging or disrespectful towards the treasure house of material that has been gleaned over the years. But we do need the courage to ask, you know, how do we measure this against really the rubric of scripture itself at times? I want you to have the courage to look in the mirror your theological mirror and ask how much grease is in my head? <laughs> how much in yours? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've never seen a bald donkey. <laughs> but ask this fundamental question because this to me has been radical, very radical over the past number of years. And as I explore it, you see, the things we take for granted Okay, in my mid-sixties now, I'm not that old, but I can remember the day where you could go jogging in any old clothes. <laughs> now you have to go jogging in designer label clothes. You're going to proclaim Nike, the Greek goddess of victory. And then, well, you only have to go into the kitchen. You know that hygiene comes from hygiea. And if you have trouble round the S-Bend, there's nothing better than a Trojan hero, Ajax. Remember, you see, uh, the great, great god of medicine and healing, Asclepius, she had two daughters, Panacea. We've all known that word. And then there's Hygieia, for prevention. There's so many words, cynicism. Politics, so many words that are part and parcel of everyday life. And we don't age real. You know, in the middle of the night, when suddenly you have that little inner kind of grumbling, you're hungry, you decide I'd love a snack, and you go down into the kitchen. There it is. The food of the gods. Ambrosia. <laughs> Creamed rice. There are just so many things that have... In everyday life, part and parcel from the ancient Greeks. A lot of it good, aesthetically, artistically, scientifically, mathematically, medically, wonderful things. But what we've got to realize, when we come to read the Bible, our DNA is Hebrew. It is Hebraic. It is Jewish. It is not Greek. Oh yeah, I know, I know you'll tell me. And I'm not totally out of touch. I have a Greek New Testament. But even now, translation work is going on in Jerusalem through bodies like the Jerusalem School of Synoptic Research 
showing how naturally even New Testament Greek can fall back into idiomatic Hebrew. And phrases that in Greek and in English are difficult actually make perfect sense when they fall back into idiomatic Hebrew. So when we come back to explore these roots and begin to explore, oh, I'm not saying we have to become Jews, but we need to explore the roots of our faith. And as we do so, what better place to start than listening to the prophets of Israel? Now I'm a firm believer, you always listen to the Bible in stereo. That's why you need to listen to both testaments. That's why I'm always a little bit uneasy when I hear people sort of say, I'm a New Testament Christian. Well, that's like saying I've got two legs, but I'll only ever spend my life standing on one of them. It's like saying you have a house without a foundation, a river without a, a source. It's inconceivable that God spends centuries weaving, as it were, his plan out through history, through the intricacy, the ups and downs of the history of Israel, then suddenly just say, Poof! this is of no value. How are we going to understand our Lord, our Christ, without this Hebrew Bible? I had one old teacher who gave me four words that I've spent years trying to unpack and will be unpacking until my dying day. He used to say, no scripture, no Christ. Let that percolate down into you. Get it down from your brain, down into your very being. Where you can imagine, let's say we had wonderful prophetic books, writings about the coming of a, a Messiah, a deliverer. But he didn't come. We just had a written text. Or a Messiah came to accomplish a work of wonderful redemption and salvation as part of God's bigger plan, but nobody ever wrote about it. You can't separate. There's the intricacy, the sheer unique intimacy and interconnectedness of the living word and the written word. <clears throat> the more you explore the Hebrew Bible, the richness of that word it come, becomes. And I must admit, of late, I have become more and more absorbed by the prophets of Israel. These are, the, in a sense, the ultimate non-conformists. These are dissenters. These are men who shake you. You hear the voice, as it were, the very word of God proclaimed through the voice of, of these men. They don't fit in. They don't sit comfortably with the establishment. They don't sit comfortably because they don't stroke the ego. They don't live easily with the status quo. They're radical. But it's in the course of these men. Can I submit this to you? It's in the course of these men, both kind of the major and the minors, but I particularly love the 12 minors. They're only minor in as much as they're shorter and briefer than the majors. But they are minors with a major message. And can I submit it this way to you? Without being anachronistic. It is in these men, the prophets of Israel, God gives us an early set of selfies of who he is. 
Think about it. You know, we, we're preoccupied today with selfies. Some of you maybe have been on Facebook already. Here I am at White Lake. Do you know this? The number of people who've gone down in my estimation, I really respected them until I see on Facebook, here I am eating a custard cream. <laughs> here I am in Paris. Uh, let's tell every burglar there in the neighborhood. Of the here I am. Here I am. This kind of preoccupation with these selfies. But can I put it this way, that in the Minor Prophets, you have virtually live streaming of the reality of God in high-definition technicolor with a kaleidoscopic range of images. That's what these Minor Prophets do for us. They're not preoccupied by being mystic bag mags or Russell, Russell Grants simply preoccupied with the future. Listen, tune into the live streaming and meet these pictures of God as a spouse, as a parent, as a judge, as a healer. All these different pictures. As a witness, as a lion, as a creator, as a shepherd. All these images. See each one. You remember, I remember very vividly discovering a very, very old kaleidoscope up in our attic. And, and when you held it up towards the, the skyline, what? Maybe 30 pieces of glass? But this seemingly infinite combination of, of, of colour. I, I like to think of it approaching God that way. It's kaleidoscopic. You cannot control, classify, or define. Look at all of these images. They are so vital. But then the ultimate selfie would come. Because in Christ that word <coughs> became flesh and dwelt among us. In Jesus we've got this ultimate picture. So I encourage you, join me in a kind of an immersion course with the prophets of Israel. Get to know these men. Get to know them in great depth. Because what you're going to discover, as Heschel says, these men had no theory of God. They were not simply philosophers. They were not simply intellectual. But rather, Heschel, in his major work on the prophets of Israel, said their God understanding was not the result of a theoretical inquiry, of a grouping in the middle of alternatives. But what they lived as witnesses struck by the word of God rather than as explorers engaged in an effort to ascertain the nature of God. Their God was living and vibrant. What's very striking is sometimes to find the words that are not in a language. And if we were learning biblical Hebrew this morning, there's no word for bachelor. It just was inconceivable. You deliberately choose to live on your own. There's no word for doubt in the covenant community. It was, it was inconceivable. The idea of intellectual atheism or agnosticism just was a non-starter to them. There's no word for history. There is in modern Hebrew, but you'll recognize it. It's historia. What's fascinating is they have no word for history because 
They only have the word for memory. The point being, memory is ours. History is somebody else's story. But memory is ours. Now, look at the difference that will make. When you and I open the Hebrew Bible on our knees, when we open from Genesis to Malachi, this is part of the story we are in. This is part of the meta-narrative. That meta-narrative that is so undermined and threatened by post-modernity, this is the big story. We are part of this story. This is our story. This is why one little lady in the wilderness came to me after one, halfway through a tour. She was very confused because our guide is in his mid-fifties. I'd put him as mid-fifties anyway. She said to me, Desi, 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 what age is Michael? I said, I thought, mid-fifties. I said, why? Oh, she says, he's always saying, when we were in Egypt, when we were, when we crossed the Red Sea, when we were in the wilderness. You see, for Michael, it wasn't simply history. That's part of his story. Now, to what degree? Do you remember when Paul's writing 1 Corinthians chapter 10 to Gentiles and yet writing to them that our forefathers in the wilderness? What sense, to what degree do we feel part of a big story? This is why we've got to get that grasp that, you know, coming to know Jesus, it's not about salvation, it's not a one night stand with Jesus. It's been drawn into the rich fabric of this unfolding story that has such early beginnings in God and Israel and it's yet to reach a consummation which we'll look at a little bit tomorrow. It's in the course of this, God makes himself known. This is part of our story. Now the striking thing is that same biblical Hebrew has no word for theology or doctrine or creed. It is primarily about a covenantal relationship of intimacy, mutuality, reciprocity, responsibility and love relationship with the living God. As they say, the Greek studies to understand the Hebrew studies to revere. And as we study, it's to increase our reverence. It's to feed our sense of awe and feed into our worship. It's not merely for intellectual satisfaction. It's not merely for an academic exercise, though that has its place, and I'm not anti-intellectual. But it's good to get to know the kind of God who is really behind the big story that we are in. Let me take you back into the wilderness to meet this God. Think a little bit about him. This God who reveals himself again. Exodus chapter 34. Moses had just prayed in chapter 33, show me your glory. And then at verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 34, the Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones. I will write them on them the words that were the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or to be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and the herds may graze in front of the mountain. Now, then look at verse 5. The Lord came down in the cloud. He stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. 
And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their fathers to the third and fourth generation. And Moses bowed down at once and worshipped. What happened there at Sinai? What can we learn about God? I like to think of it in very kind of simple terms. As this description of this selfie, as it were, it's like one of these, you know those huge North American freight trains? The really big ones. They always have got two engines at the head of them and then maybe hundreds and hundreds of carriages behind them. But they always start with the two engines. When you look at this description of God himself, it, it begins with the unpronounceable name, Adonai, Adonai. And then, carriage after carriage, compassion, mercy, love, patience. Isn't this the most wonderful picture of who God is? In Jewish tradition, this is called the 13 Attributes. Martin Luther called this the Sermon on the Name. This is a revelation of his name. Do you see how dynamic that name is? It's a bit like, you know, Treebeard, the, the king of the ants in the Lord of the Rings. He says, my name is big. My name is living. My name is growing all the time. No wonder God said, don't you ever take my name up for nothing. Don't ever belittle it. My name is so powerful. Now, as you go through this, <clears throat> here's a great exercise sometime. These 13 attributes in this train. And by the way, this train has got a guard's van. The guard's van's very clear at the end. I will not let the guilty go unpunished. What troubles me at times, now I can only talk about the situation I know best. <clears throat> so forgive me, I have a kind of a parochial island view. I live in that little green piece of soil just off your, your western side. But I hear so much preaching that goes straight to the guard's van. It's all about judgment. It's all about condemnation. But what about the carriages before you get to the guard's van? What about these wonderful... Well, can you take each carriage... Each word, in a sense, is like a container. And each one of these containers, you then take and you unpack it word by word. You can spend nearly a fortnight just in this revelation of God. As I say, in Jewish tradition, it's the 13 attributes. So you could spend 13 days just unpacking. You'll spend at least two days just on the divine name. But then go down through compassion. That's something that stirs the inner gut. You don't even have to have Hebrew. We've got so many aids now. One of the loveliest bits in this is that, well, the English versions are so polite. It says that God is long-suffering. Do you know what the text actually says there? It actually says God has got a big nose. 
It does. Trust me, I'm a minister. <laughs> it says, Af Apayim, which means God is big in the news. The Hebrew word for anger comes from exactly the same noun as the word for news. Because you can tell a lot about a person by looking at their nose. <laughs> if they're approaching you and they're snarling and their nostrils are flared and it's very red, you know they're not in the best of ironic spirits that day. <laughs> if you're in a field with a bull and it's snorting, it's in the interest of preserving life, you move. You can tell a lot by the nose. The idea is here, God's nose is so, so long, you won't see it ever get angry. Ah-apayim. Long-suffering. That's the picture here. That's why, you see, Hebrew thought is picture. Greek conceptual thinking is very intellectual. The Greeks will say, I'm having an intellectual crisis. I'm having, you know, a spiritual problem. The Hebrew will say, as for me, my feet have nearly slipped. The Greek will paint it in his mind. The Hebrew will take you out, you're struggling to get up a scree slope. The Greek will say, look at that man of integrity. Look at that man of standing. And the Hebrew will say, you know, he's like a tree planted by the river. It paints pictures. It's full of pictures. Jesus' master is a teacher that way, where he paints these pictures for us. Uh, in, in parables. It is full of vibrant pictures. So what's the picture, you know, we get of God here? Here at this mine, even the very fact, he comes down in the cloud. I mean, that's not a weather observation. This is the glory cloud. This is the Shekinah cloud. He comes down in the cloud. And again, listen to the language because it's very interesting. He stood there with Moses. And literally what the other, most translation says, and he, look at verse 6, and he passed in front of Moses. Savor the words. He passed in front of Moses. Is that just a reference to his movement along? No, of course not. That's virtually a technical phrase in Hebrew thinking. He passed by. In other words, he revealed himself. Now think. Think where that Hebrew type of thinking comes into its own when you and I are reading in the New Testament. And we stumble over that passage where Jesus was walking on the water during the night and he was about to pass them by. We think, how pastorally insensitive. <laughs> They're in trouble and he's about to pass by. But to those who are savvy, and we know that kind of Jewish background, Jesus was about to pass by. He wasn't going to circumnavigate. He was going to reveal himself. Because when God passes by, God reveals himself. It makes sense. See, that's the lovely thing about this. When we start to kind of challenge Western Christians to explore these roots, they, they get a little bit, well, we're a little bit nervous because we've kind of been trained to think through a, a Greek dualistic lens. But what they discover is that when they're sensitive to these insights, God becomes bigger. Jesus 
in its context becomes clearer and the text is just enormously illuminated. So when you think about this, get to know this God. Take a fortnight and with your Bible and with footnotes and cross-references, work your way through these 13 attributes of God. Get to know them. Get a notepad and do the same, a very similar type of exercise from Isaiah 40 to 55. And just start to take a series of notes of what God says about himself. That's all you do. Just write down what God says about God. Particularly from 40 to 55, then you can go on into 66. But let me suggest to you that really no in-depth appreciation of what's going on in the New Testament is going to happen apart from an in-depth understanding of what's going on in Isaiah 40 to 55. When you take time to walk through those, immerse yourself in that language and you begin to see God. You begin to see then these major issues that Isaiah wrestles with. These are the issues Paul wrestles with. That forms the bedrock of what takes place in the book of Romans. The New Testament didn't happen in a vacuum. Take the time. Savor it. This is a lifetime kind of enterprise. And as you get deeper and deeper into it, oh, the light gets brighter and brighter all the time. As we try to explore this nature of God, let me make three suggestions, particularly through the lenses of the prophets. Because as we read these prophets and we get a picture of God, first of all a God who suffers because of his people. You feel God having pain because as a lover he has experienced infidelity. He has been rejected. Do you remember that feeling? What would the groom not feel like knowing that even at the wedding banquet his bride was already committing adultery? What's any groom going to feel like when he looks across and sees his bride texting a lover even before the wedding reception is over? Feel the pain of this. And through these prophets you get an insight into the painfulness and the suffering that God himself feels because of the apostasy of Israel. You see in this wedding relationship, this marriage, that yes, there is the covenantal legal obligation side of it, but there's more to it. There is intimacy. There is personal interrelationships here. And you begin to see even how that noun, or the verb, knowing, is used in the prophets. Because to know is... On many levels, it involves, and I'm not, I would never, ever deprecate the intellectual level. Never, never belittle it. But don't isolate it. Because the knowing involves also intimacy. It involves the experience of personal relationships. And certainly when you read the prophets of Israel, you feel the depths of the emotions that are here. Not just intellectual theology. Listen. Listen to the language. <clears throat> what you discover is you know, a new sensitivity to words. 
I think we live today, despite the, you know, the deluge of words that come at us from every morning when we waken up with our alarm radio. You know, language today is in the slums. Words like the pound in our pocket have suffered from inflation. They don't go as far as they used to go. So when you come back to, to the scripture, learn the integrity, learn the value, learn to savor words. And listen. Listen as God, through the prophets of Israel, listen to the intensity of his language as he talks about my house, my heritage, my vineyard, my portion, my pleasant portion. The beloved of my heart. That's not mere language. That's also, you hear the emotion behind that. You hear the love behind that. You hear the passion behind that. This is God pouring out his heart. That's why, can I suggest to you, before you start to read the prophets, go to the same spec savers that they went to. <laughs> These guys always wore very vocals. And we need them when we're reading. When we're reading the prophets, you see, take for instance the book of Hosea. At one level, at an immediate and particular level, it addresses the situation caused by Gomer, her profligacy, her infidelity, her prostituting of herself. But you know, as I know, when you're reading that story, just with a little flick of the eye, this is not just the story of the particular woman, Gomer, it is also the story of Israel. That's the way these bifocals work. When you're reading the book of Hosea, yes, on one level, you are, we're being all privileged, but also pained to feel how Hosea must have felt the rejection as he lived through that infidelity. But yet, through Hosea, we are actually seeing into the very heart of God himself. Is it through Hosea's pain He's giving us an insight into his own broken-heartedness, his own sorrow because of the sin of his broken and unfaithful people. He suffers because of them. Look at Jeremiah. Look at the adjectives and the terms that Jeremiah uses of God himself. Of God you feel like sorrow. These are all words found in Jeremiah applied to God himself. Lamenting, weeping, wailing, grief, pain, anguish, heartache, regret, anger. Do we feel maybe sometimes a little bit uncomfortable with this? Because we have so intellectualized, systematized, classified and theologized our God that we maybe are getting a little bit uncomfortable here. Of a God who actually talks about pouring his heart out. Who says, you know, I will rejoice in the doing good to them. And I will plant them in this land and in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. Is this just poetic figurative language? Or is it God giving us more and more of an insight into himself? I know I have come from a tradition that has kind of been, well, I just didn't hear about this. 
It was strong in systematics, very, very strong in systematics. And I am indebted for many of the insight. But sometimes I'm left cold. And when I come to the passion of these prophets and the emotion of them, it touches chords. Let's not be afraid of them. But let's also, and I believe we've always got to be fair, we've got to be honest, we've got to be balanced. And this is where Hebrew thought is just so phenomenally helpful. You see, as you read the prophets, what you discover is that divine emotion is intense, it is profound, it is passionate, but it is never empty sentimentality. It is not gushy, mushy kind of emotionalism. And you see, this is where, let me introduce you to a little model. I have just found it so phenomenally helpful when it comes to reading the Bible. Because our Western tendency is, well, we like things systematized. We like them organized. And so often we can read the Bible like the proverbial jam maker. Because we keep the raspberry in one pot and the gooseberry in another and the marmalade in another and never will the pots mix. And we do our theology that way. And it kind of worries me sometimes too when you can get this compartmentalization. This happens very much in the academic world. But it, it, I get a little bit alarmed too when it creeps into to Christian everyday ministry where you, know, you get this degree of specialization that you know, basically I shouldn't really be talking to you because my call is to left-handed gay Catholic widows who have one leg. <laughs> and we get this specialization that I'm only for young people I'm only for one-legged old people you get this in academics and we get it sometimes too in, in ministry so have we lost that kind of holistic kind of perspective yeah we've got to be sensitive to different needs different ages different groupings but never ever at the expense of the unity of the whole. Where young and old, male and female, where they all have to learn to relate together. So let me give you a little Hebrew model here that I have found just of inestimable value when reading the Bible. Rather than it's always this neat compartmentalizing of everything, learn to read the Bible, not only with the bifocals, but learn to read the Bible with both hands. The most amazing tool that you have, it is really digital technology at its ultimate. These ten digits are so useful because when you're reading the Bible, if you read it honestly, you're always saying, on the one hand, but on the other hand. Now this is kind of technically what's called polarity. Now think about it. A magnet won't work without polarity. When you're sitting at the television and you want to change channels, you're grateful for polarity. Because if the batteries in your little remote are not working, then the batteries won't respond. You need plus and minus, positive and negative. 
Now, I'm going to give you a little more. Take this away. And, you know, ten years down the line, let me know if this has worked for you. <laughs> it's very simple on one level, but very, very profound on another. Because Heschel says polarity... See, polarity is an essential trait of all things in reality. We tend to think, because of our legacy from the Greeks, either or. Now, let me think in terms of a rectangle. Very, very simple. But we're going to divide that rectangle down the middle. And we're going to think in terms of the verticals and the horizontals. These four corners. Now the usefulness of, let's take an idea of God above us. Well, when we look at the horizontal, we can get two perspectives on God above us. When we look at the vertical, we can look at that which appears to be the opposite, a God who is with us. Transcendence and imminence. Now, if we begin in the top right-hand corner, and concentrate on all the material of God above us, well, you end up with a God who is so transcendent, so holy other, he is, well, really, he becomes the God of his own. He is a God who is so transcendent that you never, ever can possibly experience love, and at best, all you can ever hope for is mercy. The alternative, of course, is a God of Eastern mysticism. A God who is within us. A God who is deep within us. And you see, if you think in terms of either or, these are the extremes that mark so much human philosophy. Whereas, if you read the Bible honestly, can't you gather the texts that very clearly establish God's holy otherness, his transcendence, and yet at the same time, equally clearly in the same books, his being with us, being with the contrite in heart. It's not a case of either or. It's a case of on the one hand, but on the other. You see, the Hebrew mind can live with these tensions, even within scripture. Now you take this model and apply it. There's so many different areas you can apply it to. For instance, God is sovereign. Humans are responsible. If you begin in the right-hand corner, you end up just a mechanistic hyper-Calvinist. Really, there's no point in us doing anything. God's all wound up anyway. If you begin with all the emphasis on human responsibility, you end up neurotic. I've got to do it all. But yet, look at the biblical teaching. Is it either or? So often when we get into little denominational theological corners, yeah, we'll argue ourselves into a corner. Because we can't cope with the tensions. That's why we need the courage sometimes to say, listen, I'm called to awe and wonder and to worship and to obedience. I'm not called to understand God. I'm called to obey him. And that's why there's a lot of truth, you know, particularly when we find ourselves in these difficult situations where apologetically there's no easy way out. We just sometimes have to say, look, we are never called to know as God knows. But, you know, 
we can love as God loves. He never calls us to know as he knows. But he does call us to love as he loves. That's where we can minister in his name. Think about the number of other. When you begin to look at Jesus, he was divine. But Jesus is human. Oh, I know very, very quickly you could get caught up in all sorts of, you know, the, the profundities of, of uh, Christology and ontology and all the ologies. And be left cold. That's why I love, for those of you who are readers, I love some of the current work of um, Richard Bygum, who, because of illness, had to retire from St. Andrews. But he has been writing in a wonderful book recently, Jesus and the God of Israel, where he really takes terms, like the terms that, well, the Jehovah's Witness throws at us. We were thinking last night about the Jehovah's Witness. They're quite right. Trinity doesn't occur in the Bible, as it were. Richard Bycom does us a tremendous service by looking through the lens of Paul at how the early Christians really interpreted Jesus, not through the lens of Greek philosophical, theological, ontological terminology, but went back to the prophets of Israel and presented him as the suffering servant. And how you can present Jesus through the text of the Hebrew Bible. That word becoming incarnate. That word becoming flesh. Oh, it's such a help. It's so refreshing. Where you get ideas like faith and works. Where we get caught up. Is it faith or works? Faith and works. Is it faith? No. In Hebrews, faith works. Faith works. It doesn't work for anything. But as Paul says, it works out. So, when we come to the very nature of God himself, when we look at God with the unpronounceable name, there we find, it's not simply either or, but you can find both sorrow and anger. You can find both love and justice. We're tripping over ourselves to be logical and in a sense, paying your know, uh, obedience to the Greek philosophers rather than having the courage of thinking with the Hebrew Bible. This is not only a God who in the Hebrew Bible suffers because of us, but he suffers with his people as well. Again, think about how so many people in the West, if they think about God at all, it's through the categories, it's through the lenses of theologians. This is the lovely thing about being together with you, where you, you speak of the reality of God intruding into real lives. That's wonderful. Never ever give that up for the cold academic world, which some associate with theology. You're seeing God on the front line. But I think we can encourage each other to get to know that God on the front line even better and enlarge our vision of him and to know that is not a God who just does know it through books and through theology. That's not a God who can be classified, filed away. This is not a God who can be in any way systematized because our God, our God is not the God of the Greek theologian. He is not the unmoved mover. He is not simply the first cause. He is living 
Look at the terms we've invented in theological circles. To a degree, they have an element of truth in them. But, you know, he's described as impossible. It's as if it's a tribute to God to say that he cannot be touched. He is immovable. That's not the God of the prophets of Israel, who feels pain, who has sorrow. This is not a God who is cold. This is the God of the Stoics. The God of the Stoics? Well, he is the God of apathy. When you get A in the front of a Greek word, it usually is a kind of a negative. He is a God, A, pathos. He's a God without pathos. He's a God without passion. He's a God without feeling. The Stoic, they've celebrated the virtue of controlling the passions. No to pleasure, no to pain, no to expressing grief. How many people have been come under the impression that Christians don't cry when there's when there's death? Because I mean it's nonsense to, to deny us our humanity. That false stoicism. Such stoicism Nigel de Cameron in a wonderful little book drawing out the implications of the humanity of Christ complete in Christ says such stoicism represents a fundamental denial of the humanity of the believer we are not as God's people immune from the slings and the arrows of the righteous fortune we got to see even when you read these prophets see God himself you, you, you can feel his response Read them, reread them until you get, and then you discover, rather than the God of the Greek systematic theologian, this is the most moved mover. The most moved mover, because he's been touched. Listen to Heschel. Promound insight. The divine pathos which the prophets tried to express in many ways reflected the modes of God's reaction to Israel's conduct, which would change. If Israel modified its ways. What a powerful insight. God and Israel. There's a personal depth to this relationship. It's a relationship of lovers. That's why, listen, and I repeat what I said last night. At the heart of covenant, God's chosen sphere is that of covenant. His relationship to his partner is one of benevolence and affection. Can we say, is that a living reality of the new covenant? A new covenant marked because of the presence of Jesus and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Who better than us to celebrate a relationship of benevolence and affection where God's life interacts with the life of the people? That's not called theology. That's fascinating. Interpersonal relationship. A God of pathos. Where the characteristic of the prophets is not simply foreknowledge. It's not a trained timetable of apocalypticism that they give us, but an insight into the present pathos of God himself. And then one final and brief aspect of this God who through the prophets suffers with, or because of his people and suffers with them, we all are here because it was suffering for us. That's where I bring you back to that passage in Isaiah 40 to 55, where he presents the suffering servant. Isn't that striking? 
in an age of sovereigns and potentates and suzerains, he presented himself a suffering servant. And that's why you and I to this day can put on our specs, even as we read the Gospels. And we're never really going to understand the person or the work of Jesus unless we take seriously these words from the prophet Isaiah. Here are words that allow us to wrestle with suffering, not to run from it. No easy escapism. And with that theme of God suffering for us and suffering with us, I leave you with the words of Henry Nouwen, the Belgian priest. You might be surprised that we Ulster Protestant is reading Nouwen. But oh, Nouwen has such insight. Listen to this. We've inherited a story which needs to be told in such a way that the many painful wounds about which we hear day after day can be liberated from their isolation and be revealed as part of God's relationship with us. He doesn't always lift us out of suffering. But what an incredible comfort to know he's actually with us in it. Healing means revealing that our human wounds are most intimately connected with the suffering of God himself. That's certainly not a perspective I ever came across in my systematic classes. But it's one that it's so useful on the street and in our world of brokenness. To be a living memory of Jesus Christ, therefore, means to reveal the connection between our small sufferings and the great story of God's suffering in Jesus Christ, between our little life and the great life of God with us. He's the God of the prophets. And you know, day by day, tentatively, we can walk deeper and deeper into a knowledge of him. And knowing is with us. Almighty God, we can do nothing but stand in awe and bow in wonder and ask that you will be our friend and our teacher, our Lord, our provider, our fellow sufferer, <coughs> our Saviour. May we know you better and may we, in some small, Maybe very, very imperfect way, but in some way to our community. Be little selfies, whether in our joy or in our suffering, of the reality of our God, who suffered because of us, who suffers with us, and who has suffered for us. We pray through Jesus.